0: So, uh, my name is Jeff Uboise. I'm actually here wearing uh, two hats. I work with Peter at Intelligent Television and with Nan Rubin at uh, Channel 13, where we're working on an NDIP project to uh, preserve digital public television. So, this panel is going to go kind of from the general to the specific. I have a few fairly general observations and examples that I wanted to show, and then um, we'll go into more detail about what's going on at Channel 13. So. I want to talk about collaborative approaches to moving image archiving into video archiving. If you look up the definition of what an archive is online, you, you end up with two, uh, two clusters of things. And one is uh, it's a place where historical documents are stored in an institution that's designed to last a long time. The other is it's a collection of Unix files. And I think that that's uh, sort of where we are in, in the archiving world where we're at this um, place where um, the definitions of what we're doing are changing and shifting. The definition of what, a, uh, of what television is is also changing. Television is in transition and is being redefined. So the way it's being distributed is moving from RF to IP. The way it's being stored is moving from tape to disk. The way people are watching it is moving from scheduled to unscheduled and from the tube in the living room to the big screen or to the small screen. Um, There are various other formatting changes that are happening from NTSC to HD, from local to global, and from a broadcast mode to something that's more interactive, more like a conversation. Um, What's also happening is television's getting a memory. Um, Feeling very retro today. This is the first uh, tape machine from 1956. It's a two-inch machine made by Ampex. And as television gets a memory, we're seeing that happen in lots of different places. ranging from projects like the American Archive that Nan will talk about to a popular form like YouTube, which Obi has been working on, to a lot of um, smaller efforts that are diverse and distributed. Uh, the University of Delaware now has a project with 10,000 local news clips that are up uh, online for viewing and if you click a license you can search through them and find them. Uh, the Norman Lear Center in the Midwest has a collection of local news. Uh, Scola has been recording 80 channels from around the world, 24 hours a day. This is mainly for language education. The Television Archive in Bowie, Maryland has been recording uh, for the last seven years, material off air. Uh, Vanderbilt, as many people know, has been going since 1968. So there's a lot of projects that are kind of moving in parallel. There is now an opportunity for them to begin to work together, but it's not really clear what we're talking about. In a sense, are we talking about something that's corporate property that's being um, either appropriated or preserved? Are we talking about an experience that people can share with friends? Or are we talking about public memory and things that are used in in public dialogue? And the answer to that question really, it kind of depends on who you ask. Different people have different opinions about this. I tried to find some books that were, you know, a counterpoint to free culture, and I couldn't really find too many books. But I did find the FBI warning, which we've all had seared on our retinas. And archives are right in the middle of this conflict over what is uh, what is public and what is private. And uh, you know, on the one side, uh, I think to go to extremes, you see the proposal of life imprisonment for copyright violations under the new law that Albert not for can... copyright violation for thinking about copyright violations. Thought pride <laughs> is here. <laughs> so, um, so archives are right in the middle of this, of this conflict, and it's almost uh, like a collision of two different um, systems of belief. It's, it's difficult to argue with a belief system. Uh, last weekend, The New York Times ran an editorial by Michael Halpern arguing that there was no difference between tangible and intangible property. And you know, it's a really crude distinction to talk about market and gift economy. That's a, a fairly crude split of the kinds of transactions we engage in, but it may be one that's, that's useful and it kind of maps to Stuart Brand's famous comment. He said that information wants to be free and that's the part that usually gets quoted, but the second half of the sentence is information also wants to be expensive. And so we're, we're seeing a collision of these two approaches to the collection and sharing of our, of our common cultural materials, at least that's what I think of the most. This is the FBI warning that has been rewritten. It was in the presentation that uh, Peter gave, and it emphasizes that we all have uh, fair use as an option that's available to us. And I uh, personally would like to see that as, as a, um, uh, more of an ethos in, in, the, uh, in the world, but it's not up to me. Um, if you talk to people that are in social science, one of the things that they'll tell you is that the networks, the kind of networks that we're on now lower the cost of collective action. Um, to quote another friend of mine, uh, never underestimate how much free time people have on the internet. Two examples of that. One was Parkridge 47. This was the Hillary Clinton remix of the um, Apple advertisement from 1984. A lot of people spent a lot of time finding the person who actually made this ad and in the end of it, in the end it turned out it was somebody that was working for a contractor to the Obama campaign, and that person was fired. A second example of this fanatical devotion to Providence, once a clip becomes um, widely seen, is Lonely Girl 15. That was a case of something that was kind of a, almost like an AstroTurf campaign or fake authenticity of, of an emotional experience that a young girl was having as, as supposedly the daughter of, of Christian fundamentalist parents. Only it was bogus. Only it was bogus. Totally. So we're seeing um, online communities and archives that are built around this um, common production and collection and cataloging. I want to give some examples of that. Um, The first one is kind of a a lesson to how much you can control information. Um, It turns out there's a community of people that really like to hang around airports. And the thing that they like to do at airports is they like to note which planes are taking off and which ones are landing and what the tail numbers of these different planes are. And they began noticing some strange patterns of behavior at airports around the world and sharing this on message boards. And um, they traced this plane, uh, tail number, to a front company in North Carolina, uh, which turned out to be a front company for the CIA. And it turned out that this plane was being used for extraordinary rendition. This was how the network of secret prisons that's being run around the world was exposed. And so here was an organization that for 60 years has perfected techniques of controlling the information that it holds. And just through a casual, an almost casual encounter with a large online community, that information became public. We see that with video too. There was um, a project called Witness that's been alluded to here before. Grace Lyle has spoken at previous conferences that Peter and I have done. Um, And this is an archive of human rights violations. So it's an effort to share video footage of human rights uh, violations around the world. It's uh, kind of like the Rodney King video all the time, only only worse. Um, Another example of collective work and collective cataloging is a project called Dabble. This is a small company in Berkeley, California. Um, At this point, they've um, gotten metadata from uh, more than, they've gotten agreements with more than 100 sites, and they have got index or index data related to over 11 million videos. So this is a giant collection of commentary and annotations and tags um, drawn from lots of video hosting sites. So if you think about the difficulty of cataloging and the problem of dealing with a medium that's not really (coughs) opaque to computers, this approach of throwing up uh, material in front of Large numbers of people who then annotate it seems like a promising thing. Um, David Rice at Democracy Now, are you in the audience? Somebody? David, where are you? So David's been running an interesting um, project involving lots of volunteers who have been cataloging and transcribing material from Democracy Now. Do you have a quick comment or? Oh, um, uh, Democracy Now is a, a television radio program, and we have a, a volunteer coordinator who. Um, co- uh, collects all the uh, data from da- different volunteers who want to help the organization. And uh, like we set up a, a, a database to manage remote volunteer projects. So we'll email our volunteer list, which is about 6,000 people asking who'd like to help catalog uh, audio. And then our database will match um, their email, the FTP address of a directory of audio that they can work on. And then they get forms and instructions and they send that back to. Um, uh, an intern who usually coordinates the project to to uh, quality control the data and migrate it into our database. So it's a good way of you know letting our audience help with uh, the the creation of data. Um, we just saw dot sub. Um, another example of a community that's been uh, really fanatic about careful annotation of um, rich media is the Grateful Dead community. Um, that's up on the Internet Archive, and it's involved lots of people carefully poring over uh, shared playlists. Um, Tomorrow we're going to hear from a project called Medavid. This is based at the University of Santa Cruz. It was just funded by the Sunlight Foundation. Um, Medavid has been recording material off of C-SPAN for a little over a year, and they've been removing the copyrighted material, the material that belongs to C-SPAN, and taking the material that belongs to us material that comes off of the cameras in the House and Senate that are owned by the public. And they've begun to annotate that video with things like um, what are the campaign contributors to someone who's speaking on the screen. And they're doing a lot of clever things. You'll hear more about it from Abram Stern tomorrow, but they're reading uh the titling information, uh they're they're OCRing that titling information. They're combining it with uh, closed caption data so that you can search through it. They're pulling data from an organization called Open Secrets that has campaign contributions, um, and they're using uh, all open software that lets you point to particular things in the closed caption stream so you can see where uh, someone has said a particular quote, and they're building this with an eye towards making it easy for people to embed particular quotes into blogs and other media, and you can imagine lots of uses for this. You can imagine the local television news stations that are hurting for content being able to find something about what their local representatives said. So it's an interesting project. Um, Another example of this kind of collaborative effort is LibriVox. LibriVox is reading uh, works of classic literature, and you can sign up, you can read a chapter, and if you want to download something, you can. So these are all examples of Um, archivists working to essentially tap large pools of volunteers on the internet. And that seems like a really promising approach to lowering some of the costs that haven't been dropping. We've seen the cost of disk space go down by 98% since the Library of Congress did its report on uh, television archiving in 1997, but the cost of cataloging hasn't really started to move. Um, The other form of collaboration that uh, Peter and I have been talking about and talking about with people here and that we'd like to hear more about from people in the room, is this idea of public-private partnerships. On the one hand, they seem like they can be a sustainable approach to uh, long-term access. Uh, On the other hand, some of them have been secret. Some of the negotiations have been asymmetric. And it seems like there's a lot of ambivalence in the community of librarians and archivists about about these partnerships. We don't really know what good terms are. We don't understand how the terms in these agreements are going to affect the um, Possible uses of this material at some future time. So you can imagine lots of different applications for digital books, for example, and those applications may be affected by the terms and conditions that are in the agreements that are being signed. So, um, Intelligent Television and OCLC, the Research Libraries Group Division of OCLC, are doing a project to look, at, to look at these partnerships, and we hope to have some results to publish by the end of the summer. So I kind of want to rush through this um, and close with some points of discussion or things that I'm curious about or things that I would like to talk with people in the room about over the course of the next day. Um, one is the effect of partnerships and restrictions on future applications for scanned materials. The second is video CMS or interfaces to video archives. It's not uh, clear what, what those should look like, what the skin to a collection of Unix files ought to look like. Um, approaches and costs for mass clearance, and finally, approaches to collaborative cataloging. Um, So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Nan Rubin, my colleague at Channel 13.